The Money Masterclass was created to help you find financial freedom and essentially retire early if that's what you choose. Or at the very least, be able to quit your job, work freelance, work several part-time jobs, maybe even stay at home with your son or daughter and watch them full-time while doing side gigs. I've really found that there are three really important mindsets that you have to have if you're ever going to be able to get to your own financial freedom. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode number two of the Money Masterclass show, where I'm here to help you find financial freedom, retire early, and live a life that you love. I'm your host, Cody Hooper, and I'm really excited to talk to you about mindset today. I think getting your frame of mind right is really important when you're trying to tackle anything financial related. And so I'm really excited to talk about what I think are really important mindsets to have around money to be able to help you find your financial freedom and retire early if you choose. But first, before we get started, I want to offer you a free gift. I've spent a lot of time putting together a guide. It's a four-week guide, and it really it's a challenge to you to see if you can challenge yourself to save $1,000 in 30 days. One, to see if it's even possible, but what I've really done for you is I've broken it down into a four-week process it's a bulleted PDF. It's not a book. It's not anything expansive. You just literally follow it step by step. And what I put together is what I would do if I were trying to save $1,000 as quickly as I possibly could. This is the process that I would go through. And there's some really cool facets in there that I've put together that I think you'll love and that I think and hope will be really helpful for you. I want to offer it to you for free. So just go to CodyHooper.com backslash guide and you'll be able to download that right away for free. Walk through those bullet points and get you some money saved right away. And I'll link to it in the show notes uh, if you're watching on YouTube and if you're listening uh, to this uh, through whatever podcast service you use, I'll also link to it in the show notes as well. Um, But be sure to check that out, codyhooper.com backslash guide. All right, let's get started. So three money mindsets for financial freedom. Uh, Where I really want to start today in talking about this is the number one component of these three mindsets and it's really centered around net worth and I want to walk you through my net worth calculator um, and tell you why I think you might be calculating your net worth wrong because I hear all the time people talking about their net worth or advising other people to talk about their net worth and what they often do is they calculate it in a way that I think is a little bit misleading. And keep in mind, this is really centered around you as a person that wants to retire early or find your own financial freedom. I've built my mindset around this net worth calculator is really designed to help you have access to your funds. Let's say you get laid off, right? And you need a year's worth of funds. 401ks aren't really going to help you because there's a lot of penalties and a lot of fees that come from trying to get access to that money. It's also really complicated because there's a lot of barriers. Now, Many of those barriers are good for people. Don't you know? Mis- mishear what I'm saying. I think 401ks can be good for a lot of reasons. But what we're talking about 
is really trying to get you set up for financial freedom, right? And so the way that the traditional net worth is calculated, I think, has some flaws in it. And so I want to talk about how to actually calculate it and how to maybe change your mindset a little bit around what net worth could be and should look like when you think about it. And I think there's some big benefits to this even beyond just trying to obtain financial freedom or retiring early that can help you really get ahead uh, in your finances. So first, what is net worth, right? It's essentially your assets minus your liabilities, and that's your net worth. So assets, for example, would be anything you have in cash, your checking account, your savings account, investments, your stocks, your bonds, your 401ks, your CDs, your house equity, right? What's your house worth um, is included in there minus the mortgage, obviously. So whatever equity you have left in there, people typically count towards uh, as an asset. Your car, whatever the blue book value is, right, minus the debt that you have on it, uh, because in theory that's the value of your car. <clears throat> Liabilities, so credit card balances, anything you want to subtract out, any credit card balances you have, any personal loans you have, your mortgage is obviously count, counted against your house equity. A second mortgage if you've taken one of those out. And installment loans, which are your would be your car loan, right? So taking all your assets, you're subtracting all of your liabilities, what you have left over is your net worth. Now, in what I teach with the Money Masterclass is really, net worth is really the driving point of looking at your financial position. Because how much money you have in terms of net worth is really the the essential number. A lot of people like to look at their 401ks, right? How much do I have for retirement? And that's kind of the number that they base that off of. Or how much money do I have in my house equity, right? And that's kind of the center point of the net worth. When you put together your net worth and look at your financial position, you really have to take a look at the whole picture. And so that's why net worth is so important to think about. But let's take a look at where the average person is in the U.S. So this is a chart of the median United States net worth by age on head of household. Now on the right, I've got the actual average, but I've grayed that out because the average is highly skewed. That's not really an accurate number because the households that have a really large net worth, the ultra wealthy, really skew the average because they're so much further that they have so much more money than the average person does. So those numbers get really contorted. So the number here in the center that I want you to focus on is the median net worth. And so as you can see, the median net worth for most households is actually pretty low. When I looked at this, I, I know most people's goal is to get to a million. Um, they say the, the average person needs a million and now with inflation, especially where it is, this year in 2023 and was last year, most people need more than a million to retire, to be able to last them for decades on end. And as you can see, the median net worth of the U.S. household is nowhere near a million. It's actually quite a bit lower. The point here is that the median net worth of most households is very low and often below what a lot of people aspire for. Everybody I talk to and I talk to about what's their future goal for net worth, it's never anywhere near this number, right? And so if you take these numbers put together, the overall median net worth of the U.S. household on average is $121,700. Now keep in mind this number also includes home equity and car equity, and I'll, sh I'll tell you why that's important in just a second um, in the way that I like to calculate net worth. 
But the point here is the, the number is, is quite low. Um, but I want to give you a basis for where the average person is, and you can kind of gauge where you are in that spectrum. Another really interesting thing about net worth over time is taking a look at the growth of the average net worth of a household back in 1989 versus where it was in this chart and analysis. I have it going all the way to 2019. So if you look at the chart on the left, uh, we're going to use the inflation adjusted number because the inflation will make these numbers not comparable. And so the numbers you're looking at have grown exponentially from 1989 to 2019, but inflation will be because of that, right? So that large growth is, is completely irrelevant. So we're going to look at the inflation adjusted number in the second column. So what I want you to look at is all households. In 1989, the inflation adjusted number, the average net worth in 1989 was just over $93,000. In 2019, that number grew slightly to 121,760, which is about a 30% growth. So what that means is the average net worth in 1989, a little over 93, the average net worth in 2019, a little over 121,000. That means all households collectively have gotten a little bit better at increasing their net worth, right? The average person in 89 had a net worth of 93, but the average person in 2019 at just over 121. So we're a little bit better collectively at growing our net worth. But not much, right? 30% is not a huge leap, and that's a long time. 1989 to 2019, we, the U.S. has not gotten much better at making their net worth larger. But on the right, I've got the top 1%. Now, in 1989, for the top 1%, the average net worth for them was just over 4.6 million. Okay, in 2019, that number has ballooned to just over 11 million. So it's substantially larger. And what that means is the top 1% have gotten a lot better at growing their net worth. So in 1989, the average in top 1% was 4.6 million. In 2019, the average was over 11 million. So the average person in the top 1% is significantly wealthier than the average person in 1989. But the real point here is why I wanted to bring this to you and show you this is because what's interesting is that the top 1% are getting better at growing their net worth, right? And so there's a fantastic book called The Millionaire Next Door where it's essentially an examination of millionaires and how they operate. And one of the important things here from that book is that People that end up becoming millionaires and become wealthy spend a lot of time looking at their finances and trying to improve. And why I think this is so important is you are now in that category. Just from watching this video alone and making it this far, you are trying to improve your finances. And that's a huge deal because the average household is typically not doing that, right? The net worth over time, they're not getting better at financial planning or capital allocation. They're not getting better at understanding how to grow their net worth. You're in a different category, and that's fantastic. Um, and I'm really excited that I get to spend this time with you and talk about this. So I thought this was really cool to bring to light is that people that spend their time trying to better their finances are naturally going to get better at growing their net worth. Um, so you're doing great work just by being here, listening to this, and trying to improve your education and knowledge around money and your finances. You're already one step ahead of everybody else.
All right, so I want to re-explain net worth and talk to you about what I actually look at as real net worth and how I value my own net worth when I'm looking at my number and where I am. So I've taken this same exact formula that we had before, assets minus liabilities equals net worth, but mine has a couple caveats to it. In mine, I don't include house equity. So any equity that you have in your house, I actually remove from my own net worth. And I recommend that you do the same thing if you're seeking financial freedom and to retire early. And here's why. Uh, there'll be a lot of scrutiny from this, and I'm, <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with taking that, because I, I believe in this. House equity, unless you're in a very small minority in terms of how you're going to use house equity, then I will fully support using house equity in your asset number. But for most people, house equity is not going to be an asset in terms of your net worth because you can't really glean value from it in the financial free world. For example, if you're living in a home now and you're sitting on $100,000 in house equity, you can't use that to spend a year off. You get laid off or you just decide you hate your job, you want to quit, start freelancing, make a little bit of money and build your own business, the business of your dreams and your passions, your house equity can't really do much for you. Now, you could say you could take out a home equity loan, a loan against your house equity and use that equity as capital to fund your business or fund your year off raising your child at home. And that's true. But in terms of capital allocation, that money and that asset now becomes a liability because as soon as you take out a loan against it, now you're paying interest, right? And that return on that money is starting to go reverse. It's not in the stock market. It's not sitting in real estate and growing over time. It's working against you because it's now accumulating interest. So <clears throat> there's very little you can do with house equity in that regard. Further, a lot of people will say, well, you can sell your house and get your equity, which is true. But most people, when they're homeowners, when they sell their house, they move into another house. Now, what you're probably thinking and what is very logical, again, the, the minority here would be if you plan to sell your house and you rent for the next several years and you're going to take that house equity and you're going to live off of that for a few years, then fine. I'm good with you adding the equity. But for most people in reality, that is just simply not the case. Or a lot of people say, yeah, I'm going to do that plan to do it, but never actually do it because that is a big life adjustment. And most people, it's just not the case, right? I know all kinds of people that are sitting on home equity, they count it in their net worth, but they can't do anything with it. Mainly because if they do move, they're going to move into another house where they're going to take that equity and apply it towards the house, which in fact is a great idea, right? If you take that $100,000 and put it towards your next house, it's your down payment, it pulls your mortgage down, you're saving interest, right? There's all kinds of great financial benefits to that use your house equity. But what I'm saying is, in my number, I don't use the house equity and net worth because you can't do anything with it. It's locked up, right? And it is valuable. You do have it there. It's invested in your house. Your house typically should grow at about 4% a year. So, you know, especially if you're in a good market. But the, the point is that the money is invested and that's good, but it can't help you become financially free and it really can't help you retire early, again, unless you're in one of those small niche areas where you're absolutely going to sell your house and take the, the house equity and invest it right away, right? That would be one of those rare cases where you could. The other asset that I remove is car and it's for almost the same reason as house. Most everybody that has a car, unless you're in a very rare case and you plan to sell your car and bike everywhere for the next 10 years, 
then yes, as soon as you sell your car and acquire the cash, take that cash and count it in your net net worth. But if you're sitting on a car, right? In my case, I have a car that I paid off years ago and it's worth, you know, roughly $10,000. Now, regular financial logic would tell me to add that $10,000 to my net worth, but I don't because I want the car. I love the car. I'm going to keep that car for as long as it will drive. <laughs> that $10,000 doesn't mean anything to me, right? I get plenty of value out of the car. I love it. I take care of it. I maintain it really well, but I can't use it as a financial asset. I can't take the car and turn it into investments that are going to grow over time. And my 10000 is going to slowly shrink as I put more miles on it and the car becomes older and older. So it's a depreciating asset, but it would be useless for me to put that $10,000 in my net worth. Right. Unless, like I said, I plan to use it to fund my year to stay home and raise my daughter with my wife. And once I sell the car and net the cash, then yes, I can add it to my net worth. But for most people, that car, once you sell it and get the cash, you're just going to use that cash to acquire another car. Right. So it doesn't make sense to have that number plugged into your net worth because your number is going to be much larger than what's actually applicable. Right. And so down to liabilities, uh, I also like to remove mortgage from the net worth equation in the sense that I like to look at house equity and mortgages as washes. So when you're calculating your net worth, you're not going to include any house equity, but you're also not going to add mortgage, right? So if you have a $400,000 house and you owe $390 on it, you have $10,000 in house equity, saying don't add that 10 to your net worth, but also don't add the 390 that you owe on the mortgage to your net worth either. Because when you have a mortgage, you just essentially have a rent payment, right? You don't, but in theory, right, when you're looking at your budget, your mortgage is number X, let's say it's $3,000 a month. That number is just coming out of your monthly number, right? So it doesn't really have much to do with your net worth other than being an, a monthly bill that you have to pay. Just like if you had a $3,000 rent payment, that number would be coming out of your monthly budget, but it wouldn't have anything to do with your net worth. So I remove mortgage from the liability. I just don't also give myself credit in the asset column for home equity. Last thing about liabilities, you might be thinking, if you're removing car from assets, do I also remove car from liabilities? I don't, because the installment loan that you have or the car loan that you have is still a liability for you because you owe that money and you're going to have to pay that money no matter what, right? Unless you happen to default or claim bankruptcy, that installment loan, if I owed $10,000 on the car I have now, I would not give myself any asset value for the car, but I would have to count the car loan towards my liabilities and deduct it from my net worth because that future $10,000 is going to eventually go away, right? If I decide to retire this year or try to spend the next four or five years building a business with no income, I still have to make that car payment, right? I need good credit. I need to have great credit payment history, and I'm going to have to pay the 10000 I owe no matter what. So car loans have to stay in your liabilities and be deducted from your net worth because those bills are going to keep coming and you're going to have to pay that $10,000 no matter what. All right, so mindset number two, fierce frugality but with a twist. Now, frugalness is typically thought of as people that are cheap or 
savers, but frugality actually doesn't mean cheap or saving at all. Frugality actually means effective and non-waste related, right? And so that's what I teach when it comes to frugality. So essentially what you have to do in this second mindset to become financially free is you have to live on less, right? It's a really simple concept, but it's actually pretty difficult in practice. Now, I've got a couple of facts. Uh, PYMNTS.com and Lending Club performed a really fascinating study on consumers. Um, what they looked at is they really wanted to identify who's living paycheck to paycheck and how many Americans does that actually make up. Fact number one that was really fascinating was 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Six out of every 10 people in America are living paycheck to paycheck. That's astounding. One third of the U.S. not currently saving anything. And of that group, 60% of those people have zero dollars in savings, right? Third amazing fact that came from this study was that 16% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck make $100,000 or more. This was amazing to me, and this is highlighted also really well in the book, The Millionaire Next Door. A lot of high-income earners we view as financially free or having a great chance of retiring early or just really well-off in general with a high net worth. Um, it's often not the case. Many of those individuals have great incomes, but they also have very large houses. They have multiple cars. They go on lavish vacations, and they're not saving anything. Um, I just It's amazing to think that 16% of Americans making $100,000 or more a year are also living paycheck to paycheck, but it's also not that surprising because they just spend $100,000 a year. Um, so the point of this is that th this mindset is really important when thinking about financial freedom and how you're going to get there. You have to wrap your mind around how you're going to live on less because if six out of every 10 people are living paycheck to paycheck, you're never going to be financially free if you're one of those people. And that's just a fact, right? You have to live on less and find a way to be frugal. But I'm not suggesting that you don't spend anything and live your life because my mindset and my approach to all of this was not to go to the extreme, cut back on everything and just save everything I made. Although I went through periods of that, <laughs> I learned over time that was not right for me. And I think there's a lot of other people that struggle with savings because they think if they're going to save, they have to save everything and nothing is ever going to be enough. And that's just not the case. The key is to stop wasting, right? Waste is the enemy of everything. And that's really what this mindset is about. Frugality is about eliminating waste. It's not about just saving everything wearing around socks with holes in them, in them and eating ramen for three meals a day. That's not at all what I'm suggesting, but I am suggesting to stop wasting money, right? And we can do this in really in four really easy steps. So number one, if you track your spending, you're really going to start to understand waste. This was a huge turning point for me. When I started using Mint and looking at every single transaction that I was making, at the time, the reason I did it is because I had a multitude of credit cards. <laughs> they all had different cashback schedules. I was using different credit cards each month. Um, and I've since completely eliminated and moved away from that because I tend to overspend that. Um, and I, I have a workshop on credit where I really talk about how much I overspend because of using cashback credit cards. But the point here is tracking spending is the best way to stop wasting. And it's really step number one because 
you can so clearly then begin to see what you're spending on. I know so many people that are struggling financially that are just wasting money on all kinds of things and they're not really aware of it, right? It's They're just falling prey to the the way that they've always been, the way that they were raised, the way that their peers and friends spend money. And so tracking your spending can really bring to light how much you're actually wasting and what you're spending your money on. And waste is the worst kind of spending because you're just throwing that money in the trash when you could have otherwise just kept it, right, to build a life, to become financially free one day. So tracking spending is step number one. Number two is just to look at that spending and identify the wasteful spending, right? If you look back at your previous month, what did you waste your money on? I bet you if you look at that, you're going to start to develop some patterns. You're going to start to see some things that are going to bring to light. Oh, wow. I really waste a lot of money on X, right? It's coffee that I don't really enjoy. I just happen to get it every time I'm going out. I went through a period of that. I'm obsessed with pumpkin lattes at Dunkin' Donuts during the fall. Good Lord. It's a rarity that I didn't get one a day. Uh, that I went a day without getting one for a period of time in my life one year. And, you know, that was a terrible, terrible habit because I wasn't getting any joy out of it. I was just falling into the habit of it. Now, I love the drink, obviously. But the point is, getting one on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday was not adding any value to my life. It was just a habit that I had. Every time I went out, I just grabbed one and that money added up to hundreds of dollars in the trash where if I got one every Friday, I thoroughly would have enjoyed it and I could have saved myself 20 to $30 a week just by changing that one habit. And I didn't really realize it until I looked at my previous month's spending and went, wow, that is a lot of money. What in the world is happening here, right? We get into those habits and routines that really lead us down paths that we, we didn't really know that we were going down. So you have to look at that stuff in order to be able to establish some of those patterns and make some changes. So number three is how we make those changes, right? Categorize your wasteful tendencies. For you know, Look at coffee, but look at anything else that you might be wasting money on. I know a lot of people that they just get trinkets, right? They, they go out and they see a thing and it seems like something that they'll enjoy. And psychologically, there are some things happening. Subconsciously, there are some things happening, right? You had a bad day, you're stressed at work. So purchasing something and obtaining something really helps alleviate that. You get a little dopamine hit and you feel good right after. But immediately, right, the dopamine subsides like it always does. And now your money is gone and you have a trinket that has no value for you and no resale value. So you've essentially just thrown that money away for a little bit of a rush. If you can look at the wasteful spending and categorize it, you can start to develop patterns and habits that you may have that you can stop, right? Once you identify them, step one is to identify what you're doing, and step two is to really make changes to that. So you, next time you go out, you're going to buy the trinket. Ah, categorize that as a wasteful spend last month. Maybe I don't want to actually do this here, and you can stop, right? That's exactly what I did with the absurd coffee obsession that I had for a while in order to shut that down, I had to first become aware. And then instead of turning into the drive through line, I, I started to slowly not do that, but I had to become aware of it first. And so number four is the easy one, right? Obviously just start eliminating that. Just becoming aware is step number one, but really, you know, setting some limits to yourself to not waste once you see something or you fall into a pattern of what you think you're going to buy that you know is going to be wasteful. Don't do that, right? So make yourself aware and then stop eliminating those waste. Um, another example to this could be subscriptions, right? I have noticed that 
I get on kicks with subscriptions where I do this all the time with movies where I'll see a movie or a series come out that I really want. I'll pay for that service on that subscription and then you keep that subscription going and months and months and months will go by and I don't use it. But the company is taking my money, taking it away, and I'm getting absolutely no value for it. So consider that one as a possible. Random coffees we've talked at length about. We don't need to belabor that anymore. <laughs> Eating out is another big one. Man, I've noticed that when I look at my historical spending, a ton of eating out that gave me no value always comes from convenience. I'm always rushed. It's always late. I might not have groceries at home, so just eating out that day that morning, that night, whatever it might be, is so convenient. But I always look back, and I, a ton of times I see eating out as a complete regret waste. So I've categorized it now, and every time I go to eat out, I question two to three times, do I really want to get value out of this? Am I really going to see value, or am I just doing this for convenience? And I've stopped myself a multitude of times from going out just by simply asking myself two or three additional times if I really want this. And almost every time it's been because of convenience and I don't actually want it. It saved me a ton of money just by doing that. Unused gym memberships are another example that you might suffer from. I know so many people that have paid for months and months and months of gym memberships that they've never used right? Happens all the time in January, as we know. People sign up, they get really ambitious. February, March, April go by, no gym trips, one or two gym trips where you're really losing out on a lot of money. So take a look at yours and start to cut out some of that waste. You're already going to be saving money immediately as soon as you stop some of those spending patterns. And lastly, like I mentioned off the top, my guide, Can You Save $1,000 in 30 Days? My challenge to you uh, I suggest you to look at that guide because it walks you through exactly how to do this. I have an entire bulleted step-by-step -step process where you can just literally follow the bullet steps of exactly what I have done, what I would do if I were trying to save more money and really stop wasting. I go right through a process of exactly how to do this and how to set it up for yourself, so be sure to check that out. All right, so number three, and the final mindset that I really want to talk about today is to be a believer. Now this may sound trite, but why not, right? Why not be a believer in yourself? And I love this concept when it comes to money because money is, is such an interesting and odd topic. I, be a believer in yourself as a golfer? Sure, no problem. A basketball player, a musician, a professional artist, an actor, right? All of these people, we, we think about these professions and we think, oh, be a believer, of course. It's exactly how you're gonna find success. It's so rarely talked about when it comes to money, but yet I talk to so many people that don't believe that they can save. They don't believe that they can retire early. They don't believe that they can take hold of their finances and become free from living paycheck to paycheck, right? That's why so many people don't do it, but belief is very, very powerful. So there's a fantastic book called How Do Champions Think? And in that book, there's an amazing quote that really sums up exactly what I'm talking about here in this third mindset. It says, They have confirmed my belief that the ideas people choose to have about themselves largely determine the quality of the lives they lead. We can choose to believe in ourselves and thus to strive, to risk, to persevere, and to achieve, or we can choose to cling to security and mediocrity. And I've highlighted and bolded the word choose because what 
they're essentially saying is that you have the choice, right? I love this because when you really think about it, you have the choice whether to believe in yourself or not. No one else is telling you to believe in yourself. No one else is telling you not to believe in yourself, although there may be reinforcements of that. Parents are a good example. Friends that razz you or constantly tell you you can't do anything you want to do are definitely influencing that. But at the end of the day, you're choosing whether or not to believe in yourself. And what Dr. Bob Rotella is talking about when he says this and what he kind of explains in this setup is that the way champions think is they're constantly choosing to believe in themselves. All the golfers that he worked with, almost all of them visualized the shot that they were about to take going into the hole. That might sound small and meaningless, but according to his research, that, that had the biggest impact of anything is that they believed in themselves, right? They They visualized the shot going in before they ever took it. They didn't have doubts and worries, ah, oh, I didn't shoot well in the last hole, or I just missed that last putt. None of that came into effect. They literally visualized the ball going in every single time. Now, when they shoot it, it doesn't always go in, but it doesn't matter. The point is they choose to believe in themselves. And in order for you to become financially free, in order for you to be able to hit your savings goals, you have to believe in yourself. You're never going to achieve anything if you don't believe in yourself. If you don't think you can save $1,000 in 30 days, I promise you, you'll be right. <laughs> you will not be able to. But those that do achieve all of this, those that do retire early, that are not living paycheck to paycheck in that minority, um, they do believe in themselves. So there's a fantastic story that I want to highlight that really kind of puts a bow on all of this and wraps this up. Uh, so who is Pat Bradley? It's likely you've never heard of her. Don't worry if you haven't. I hadn't either until I read this story. Pat Bradley is a professional golfer. And so after playing professional golf for 11 years, she had won one tournament. I just want to say that again because this is utterly fascinating. Pat Bradley, professional golfer, played golf professionally for 11 straight years, and of that time had only won one tournament. She had every reason in the world not to believe in herself if she were looking for validation in the success, right, in the traditional way that we look at it. She had average size, average club speed, nothing about her really indicated any athletic ability beyond most people, right? And so when Dr. Bob Rotella met with her, he asked her what her goals were. This is what she listed. Number one, to win the LPGA Player of the Year Award. Okay. Number two, have the tour's lowest scoring average. Pretty lofty. Number three, to win all women's major championships very lofty. There's seven of them. <laughs> That's a big goal. And number four, to make the LPGA Hall of Fame. Okay, the Hall of Fame is <laughs> her fourth goal after 11 years only of winning one tournament, right? Amazing. But what happened over the next 10 years is Pat literally achieved every single one of those goals. And the reason was belief, right? There's no way Pat goes on to achieve those over a 10-year period without believing in herself. And that's what, that's what this story really emphasizes, is that anything truly is possible from belief. But I, I really emphasize the history because if you've gone for 11 years and saved almost nothing, if you've gone for a really long period of time and are no closer to your financial goals than you were before, 
if you have average income, if you have average spending patterns, right? If you're living paycheck to paycheck right now, that does not mean that you can't achieve what you want to achieve. You can, right? All you have to do is believe in yourself, right? Start with a little frugality, live on less than what you make, and really, you know, start to put a plan together and orchestrate eliminating some of this waste and doing these things that can help you achieve your goals. I promise you, you're going to be able to get there. Layering on a new approach to net worth will really help too, because you're going to be looking at a true accurate number in which you can use. But if you follow these three steps, these three simple mindsets, you can achieve financial freedom, right? It's not going to happen tonight. It's not going to happen next week, right? took Pat over 10 years to achieve what she wanted to achieve. But the point is she believed in herself. She set her sights on the goal. And then she worked for 10 years to get that done. I promise you, you can do the same thing with your finances. All you have to do is believe in yourself and take some time to actually plan this and think this through. But I want to commend you. You're a rock star because not only have you made it to the end of this video and educated yourself in a lot of aspects that you had never had before, but... This is the first step, right? In order to believe in yourself, you've got to educate yourself. You've got to build some confidence and you've got to learn some things. So I'm really thankful and really happy that we've been able to spend the time together to talk about this. I hope this helps. And again, head over to CodyHooper.com backslash guide. Grab that PDF guide. Um, the challenge of can you save $1,000 in 30 days. I know other people have gotten some value from these bullet points and learned some things that they never knew before. And whether you're just starting or you're really trying to kick kickstart your goals into getting some financial freedom, I promise there'll be something there that'll be able to help you and hopefully you can learn from. So thanks for taking the time today. It's been awesome talking about this with you. And we will talk again soon on another episode.